This is the Monday, May 21st, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine welcomes aboard the daughter of one of my all-time favorite writers. Heck, one of my all-time favorite people, Rod Serling. The writer best known for his ominous exposition in TV's groundbreaking anthology, The Twilight Zone. Of course, Rod Serling was so much more than those introductions. So much more than just a pixelated guy in black and white. More even than we learn from screenplays such as Planet of the Apes, Requiem for a Heavyweight, Patterns, Seven Days in May, The Velvet Alley. I just caught an episode called The Time Element the other day with some great old bookends by Lucy and Desi. Desi shows us a new refrigerator at the end. This is the very dawn of television and the dawn of television sponsorship, which is something Serling struggled with but he never became bitter and nasty, like some books may claim. And set aside his TV and writing work, he was also a soldier. During his service in World War II, he was called the littlest damn paratrooper. But he had a big laugh, a laugh big enough to fill up a whole auditorium full of students, because he was somebody who always connected with young people. He was a jokester, animal lover, social commentator, writer, and, unfortunately, a heavy smoker, which contributed to his death at only 50 years old in 1975. But as we'll hear from this week's guest, perhaps the credit Rodman Edward Rod Serling could boast with the greatest pride is that of loving father. That is the man we'll meet today, as introduced to us by the younger of his two daughters, Anne Serling. She's the author of As I Knew Him, My Dad Rod Serling. Anne is a writer and former early childhood teacher, as well as a board member at the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. She's published in the Twilight Zone, the original stories, and the Twilight Zone magazine, in which she adapted two of her father's teleplays into short stories. She's also published poetry, appeared in Salon and Huffington Post, and she's currently working on a novel. Visit her online at annserling.com, at Ann Serling on Twitter or Facebook.com slash Ann Serling Books. That's Ann spelled with an E. And I guess we all know how to spell Serling. Okay, now that we've entered that other dimension, let's meet Ann Serling and chat about her book, As I Knew Him, My Dad Rod Serling. I'm joined on the line by Ann Serling author of As I Knew Him, my dad, Rod Serling. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Well, thank you, Dean. 
I must confess that I had a hard time finishing As I Knew Him, not because it failed to hold my interest, which is the usual reason people don't pick up a book and finish it in a sitting, but the total opposite of that. I really didn't want to reach the end of all these wonderful stories and letters and first-person accounts with your dad and then reach the end of his life. So I was really savoring it. I'd read it maybe a chapter at a time or a story at a time that you put here in As I Knew Him. And I wondered, how did you meet that challenge of bringing your dad back to life for readers, knowing that you, as his daughter, who loved him so much, would have to say goodbye all over again when you finished? Well, it it was a very long process. And actually, shortly after, or a couple of years after my dad died, I tried to write about it at that point, a book called In His Absence. And I hadn't really even begun to navigate that whole minefield of grief that's so necessary. But I also found writing cathartic like my dad did. But again, I couldn't, I couldn't find my way out of that. So I set it aside. And as I knew him, took about seven to eight years. And there were three reasons I wrote the book. One, as I said, because I find writing cathartic. Two, because I wanted to know more about my dad's professional side. And three, because I wanted to dispel some of the rumors that were out there that my dad was this somehow very dark and angry and depressed guy. And, and that described a man that I wasn't even remotely familiar with, nor were his friends familiar with. So those were the incentives. And and. It actually was a joy to spend every day writing about my dad. And of course, I knew, you know, where I would end up, you know, in his death. But it was, you know, a lot of exploring and, again, being with him every day. So it was a difficult process, but for the most part, like I said, joyful. You really do him justice here. It's one of those cases where a person will say, he's everything you would want him to be. He's a mentor, not just to you, his daughter and and your sister, but to your friends, to people that write him, that ask him for advice on writing, to students. When he goes and gives a speech, he's really invested in it and guiding young people the way that he would like to have been encouraged himself. The man in As I Knew Him is really an ideal father. This, if it wasn't about your father, could be a guide to men on how to be fathers. He's really that ideal. And you have documentation for that, by the way, for people listening. It's not just that you loved your dad. I'm thinking of a lesson he learned from the film The Man about the first African-American president and accidental president. He rises there through deaths of men in the chain of command above him. Your dad said he learned not to write characters that never go to the bathroom, meaning <laughs> nobody is that perfect. People do have all the faults and all the virtues. What was it like growing up with Rod Serling as a dad? Because at the time, It's the 60s, it's the 70s, there's all this tumult, there's the generation gap, there's people going off to Vietnam and this break with your father's generation, which is the World War II generation, he fought in the war. So how was that compared to what you saw your friends dealing with, with their own parents? Yeah, you know, they were very tumultuous times. I was still pretty young then. And for the most part, we were shielded from a lot of that, but I do remember not wanting to say, for instance, the Pledge of Allegiance at school, you know, upset about Vietnam War, and my dad supported that. I had to write a hundred times why I would say it, and it had to be signed by a parent, and he gladly signed it for me. I think he was proud, you know, that I was 
standing up for what I thought was right. I always knew that my dad was passionate about prejudice. It was, he thought, the greatest evil of our time, and he was very vocal about that. And so the things that he was passionate about, that we talked about that. It was hard for most veterans to get over that. And yet, when I look at your dad and I see his later work, for instance, there's that episode of The Twilight Zone where he has the American soldier switch places with his Japanese counterpart. He turns around to the camera and there now he's Japanese. And it reminds me of a gentleman that I interviewed just passed away, the second oldest survivor of Pearl Harbor, who wrote his book, Lieutenant Jim Downing. And he said it took him a while to get to the point where he could stand there with not just any Japanese person, but he actually meets the man who planned the attack. First, he says, I'm not able to shake his hand until he gets to know him and he realizes that he really is repentant on this. He regrets the war and suffered in it just as much. The fact that your dad is able to take that larger perspective, it struck me as so unique, so special. I guess that's why... He's one of my favorite people because I want to be that myself and inspires me to be a better person. You can be passionate about improving humanity as he was and about his ideas, but what sets him apart to me here as I'm reading as I knew him is he'd engage people and try to persuade them and what a persuader he was. We still watch all of his work because it does speak to that best person inside of us. It speaks to our best humanity. He'd lay out his case. He'd not just resort to the calling of names and insults. And as I was working on this question with you, I emailed it back and forth to you. I realized one of those ways or one example is the sponsors. He's well known for fighting with the sponsors, for calling them out on things like well, we have coffee for our sponsorship, so we don't want to have tea in the, in the set. You know, nobody should be drinking tea. And yet he just says in one thing that I read here in As I Knew Him, well, that's not their expertise. Their expertise is selling toilet paper or soap, but that's what the marketing people do. They're not writing the drama, and yet they stop in the middle of my drama, and it's a bunch of dancing cartoon rabbits that are running around. So even there, whereas it would be so easy to give in to whatever anger and resentment you had against the sponsors – He's saying, well, that's just not what they are. That's not their job. Their job is to sell soap. And I thought that was really beautiful. I thought that the fact that he's so disgusted by Hogan's heroes, he, it makes light of the Holocaust, it makes light of the concentration camps and of the POW camps under the Nazis. And yet his friend Bob Crane is the star. He's able to go to him and speak to him about his reservations about casting sort of as a romp, I believe, is the way that your dad put it. Talk about the lessons that you think readers can take from As I Knew Him, getting to know your dad, and live better lives themselves, especially today when it's just so easy to go on a comment page or go on Twitter or Facebook and really rip somebody. What do you think we can learn from him? Well, you know, I've thought about that a lot, you know, as things are so tumultuous and really so heartbreaking in so many ways today. And I thought, you know, what would my dad say? And I think initially he'd be a little apoplectic, and then I think he'd be deeply saddened. But I think he'd also then try to think of a proactive way, a sensible way to move forward. Because I, you know, my dad really felt that we could all do better. He could do better, we could, we could all do better. One of the reasons that he was so passionate about getting these messages out, you know, when he would come up against sponsors, was that he felt it was important. These are things that sadly are still, you know, like prejudice, for instance, mob mentalities, scapegoating that are so relevant and prevalent today. And that's why actually he launched into the Twilight Zone because he said, 
an alien could say what a Democrat or a Republican couldn't. But to focus more on your question, he would try and find maybe some common ground that we're all deeply caring about and find a way to push forward. I'm not sure it would always be successful, but I think there would certainly be an attempt to do that. Your father is linked seamlessly to the Twilight Zone, but that's only one thing that he did, and that's why I wanted to avoid a lot of those cliches. It cries out. It's it's in all of our minds, so it's easy to write about it. It's easy to just go in with the spooky music. It's easy to cast the guy, which I guess is why people have written these books as if he was some guy out there pulling the wings off of birds or you know torturing ants with a magnifying glass or whatever. They wanted to capture a dime, and that's who some people, I guess, do want him to be, speaking of him being everything you'd want him to be. But in As I Knew Him, you write, quote, Anyone who knows my dad says he's nothing like that image on the screen, specifically talking about the Twilight Zone there. Take us back to that first time you saw him on TV reading an introduction. How old were you about and what did you think of him? How did that man on the little black and white screen compare to the father you knew? Well, for starters, the father I knew is the father that I watched the Flintstones with and who did probably the best gorilla impersonation you could imagine. (laughs) I always knew that my father was a writer, you know, from a very early age, but I didn't know specifically what he was writing. And I talked about this in the book, that kid on the playground asked me if I was something out of the Twilight Zone one day, and I didn't have a clue what he meant. So I went home and asked my father what that meant, and he explained that he wrote for a series called The Twilight Zone, but that it was probably too old for me. And then, oh, I don't know, a couple of years later, I watched the very first episode. The very first episode I watched with him was Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Now, although my dad didn't write that episode, it was Richard Matheson, uh, it was terrifying to me, you know, to see this gremlin on this airplane and, you know, to look from the TV to my father and think at that point that this is what my dad wrote. (laughs) Again, though, it wasn't his. It was still my father who appeared on screen, but he was nothing, nothing like that. And it wasn't really, it wasn't really, Dean, until after my dad died that I started to even watch The Twilight Zones. And at that point, it was more to see him than the actual show. It really took me a while to watch them for what they were. You share an anecdote here in this book that is one of my favorites, and I was glad to see it show up in the book. It illustrates this practical joking side where he's flying with Richard Matheson, and he decides to play a whole prank on him, and he goes through all this elaborate work to make this prank. And I I guess I can let people pick up the book and read that, but if you think about a plane and the opportunities to play a prank, it, it you, you really want to pick up, as I knew him, to read this anecdote. He really was Like a big kid, he reminded me a little bit of Theodore Roosevelt when his wife Edith says, I have six children, because she counts her husband as one of the children, because he's running and romping with them, and then you have the animals. really sounds like it was a very energetic childhood, and somebody who had a real sense of humor, a sense of what it was like still to be a child, even when he becomes a parent himself. Right, and and to the anecdote that you're talking about, he, he said that he spent hours, he'd stay up at night planning how to do it. So <laughs> he was very silly, very funny, brilliantly funny. And, you know, at, at, when you're a teenager, of course, you don't think your parents are funny. But my dad, I always thought, was hilarious, as did my friends. And I think it's because of what you were talking about, that, you know, that he was silly. He sort of 
never outgrew that. Most people sort of do and become very serious. Some, not all, but, but my dad really did. He was able to maintain that childhood wonder and imagination and real loveliness. I guess as you're saying that, it seems like he's one of those men who they say, take your work seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. He seems as if he was always, he would even undercut himself sometimes and not claim he had ownership of something or claim that he'd done something, like even just telling you, oh, that's a show I write for. He didn't come to you and say, oh, that's my show. It's very important. He understood that as a child, that was really all you needed to hear. Right. Yeah, he could be very self-deprecating too. He shares the co-writing credit, for instance, for the original 1968 Planet of the Apes screenplay. Yet, from what I read, he's not jealously claiming credit for that iconic final scene, which, spoiler alert, if anyone hasn't seen the Planet of the Apes yet, that final scene with the half-buried Statue of Liberty, I read some of the other comments on it as I was reading about the movie years ago, and others are more than willing to say that that was their idea, that they played a, a big part in it, that it was theirs, and others say, well, no, it was Rod Serling who came up with it. Your dad says, well, he doesn't really recall it, but he's not anxious about getting credit for it. He just loves that whole body of work, or rather he's proud of his body of work. Looking at As I Knew Him as a how-to book, a book for advice for writers and creative people and parents and all the things that your father was, what do you hope they'll take from that as a lesson about collaborating? Because working with somebody, collaborating is very hard. And here he not only has to deal with other creative people, he has to deal with networks, he has to deal with sponsors. These are all challenges we face today trying to get our work out there. What can we learn from him? Well, you know, when he worked on The Twilight Zone, there were several other writers. There was Matheson, Charles Beaumont, Earl Hamner. What I think all of these writers would say was it was really a pretty seamless group. They were all very respectful of one another's work and all felt that they were each contributing in a really positive way. Um, I know the producer, Buck Houghton's wife, has been quoted as saying it's, it was a really happy place to be. You know, in terms of him collaborating with other writers, that can be a great process. And I think, you know, many writers do do that today. It can really strengthen the ultimate project. I'm certain, you know, that in any kind of collaboration like that, there may be envy and there may be jealousy and there may be all of that. But there's also, I think, that sense that I'm talking about where they each know that they're contributing something in a positive way and, and really focused on the final product. One of my favorite anecdotes here in As I Knew Him, speaking of you as a little girl, helping listeners to picture you as that daughter of this iconic figure, you discuss Willie, the creepy, perhaps demonically possessed ventriloquist dummy in that iconic Twilight Zone episode starring Cliff Robertson as the man who's supposedly putting words in the mouth of Willie. And I know as a child myself, they used to play those on WPIX, which you probably remember all the time. It would come on, I guess, after Star Trek. So if you were still up in time to hear that music and pull the covers up over your face and it was the Willie episode, it really freaked you out. And yet you have this great story about playing with Willie. So tell us that. Yeah, he didn't often bring props home, but he brought the dummy home. And of course, neither my sister or I had seen this episode. So what we saw was, you know, this doll that my father would animate and make alive and it would sit on my father's lap. And we had him sit at the dinner table with us. And then my sister and I fought about who could sleep with him 
at night. And <laughs> then, you know, my dad had to take him back. And we were so sad that Willie had to go. And then years later, I saw the episode and realized, oh, my God, here's this malevolent <laughs> creature who then actually becomes the ventriloquist. And it was terrifying. <laughs> so the Willie that stayed those couple days in our house was not <laughs> no incidents. Not who he appeared to be, apparently. <laughs> One of the most evil, infamous props in all of television. He brings it home for his little daughters to play with. And it occurs to me, we were just talking about him being a practical joker. You're fortunate that he didn't bring home the actor who plays the dummy at the end come to life and said, oh, look, here's Willie. I brought him right. to life. Because <laughs> it seems like maybe something he might have done, depending on your age, if it would have freaked you out or not. But bringing home this dummy and saying, here, go Go play with it. And then the way you write it in the book saying, then we see it on TV and say, what were you thinking? How could you give us that? So you're probably the only person who watches that episode and has any fond memories of it about Willie. <laughs> well, I think after watching the episode, those were somewhat erased. So yeah. <laughs> you found out what he was really all about. Yeah. In As I Knew Him, you share many letters from your father to his parents during his paratrooper training in World War II, then his service over in the Philippines, in the Pacific during the war. Admirers will know how the war influenced your father from his writing, but how did it influence him in his life after the war? How did those scars stick with him? Well, you know, actually writing that part of the book was one of the most difficult parts to read those letters that he was writing his parents when he was in training camp. And when I was writing that portion, my son was the same age that my dad was, 18. So, you know, I, I got a really up-close sense of what a kid my dad was. And, he, you know, he was writing things like a kid at summer camp would write, you know, could you send me bubble gum? Could you send me candy? And then, of course, you know, he was thrust into war. And, you know, I, I don't think that anybody who experiences war escapes I think it breaks you in, in ways that stick with you. And I know it stuck with my father. I remember that he had nightmares. And in the morning, I would ask him what happened. And he would say he had dreamt that the enemy was coming at him. I have a very good friend whose father was in the war. And it wasn't until he was in his 80s that he could even begin to talk about it. Post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't even a term back then. I think it was shell-shocked, but certainly there was no treatment. There was no real deep awareness of how traumatized these kids, and they are kids, you know, how traumatized and damaged they were. I think, how did it affect my father as a father? Well, also, my father's father died when my dad was overseas, and even though the war was over, my father didn't have enough points to come home. So there was that double trauma, and... If it changed him, Dean, I don't know, maybe, maybe a sense of awareness of how fleeting, to use a cliche, but how fleeting life is, maybe that's the answer. He's really in the thick of it. And I guess all of these things about dealing with the sponsors, dealing with the writing in the war, dealing with people he disagrees with politically, he's able to have a little bit of that what we'd call today, they didn't have helicopters then, but we say a helicopter perspective, an overall perspective. And having interviewed a couple of veterans of various wars, World War II specifically, the second oldest survivor of Pearl Harbor that I mentioned, Jim Downing, also a gentleman who was with Patton's Army, he was over there and he had a, a hard time as well. All of these things that you think of, they're, they're trained. You, you can't kill somebody without learning to hate them. And there was certainly reason. And yet your father's able to produce something like a quality of mercy, an episode where 
He switches places. He has the main character, the gung-ho American soldier, wants to kill all of the enemies, which is the job. But here the war is coming to an end, so your father builds in a conflict there. Then he has him switch and be on the Japanese side. And I, I just thought it was so amazing. That's one thing for us to write it from the comfort of our homes and say, well, what was the fight really all about? Your dad had been in the thick of that, and yet he was able to have that higher perspective, I guess, and see people as human beings. It takes veterans a long time to get to that. Lieutenant Downing didn't write that book until he was 103. He published it. He's the oldest man ever to publish a book. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Your dad was able to work through all of that at a relatively young age and deal with it on the screen in a way that still holds up today. And you write in, as I knew him, that he'd be surprised that his work has endured so much. Yeah, he was quoted as saying that he thought that his writing was momentarily adequate and that it wouldn't really stand the test of time. So no one would be more surprised than my dad that it has indeed stood the test of time. A a couple of years ago, the Writers Guild voted The Twilight Zone one of the three best shows, and he would have been so honored to be acknowledged by his peers. I think, Dean, one of the reasons it survived is certainly because, you know, he dealt with the human issue. So there you have it. Yeah. Right? Because there's a lot of those things from back then, a lot of TV shows, plays, movies, what have you, they really don't stand the test of time. You look at them today and you say they're really dated. Even even shows that are as recent as 20 years ago, you'll say, well, the plot may hinge on something like not being able to get a phone call or, or something like that. There's that Seinfeld episode with the Chinese restaurant. It's so the technology has rendered the central theme a little bit moot. So it's a period piece, but it doesn't really speak to something in our lives, nor was it meant to. It's just a sitcom, right? And it's funny and everything, And but it's just driven by that little situation. Whereas something like War and Peace, something about forgiving somebody who looks like the men who were trying to kill you, who you maybe just had a dream about last night, that's where the central conflict comes in. And that's why I think these are able to stand up now so many years later in a way that a lot of other things that were produced for TV, especially in in this era when they're just learning TV, were tough. They were real challenges to, to deal with something and not just have it be sausage that you're pumping out of the factory. He really wanted to produce good things. And the fact that, unfortunately, people decided to just assume that that was him 24-7 before the internet came around, before you wrote As I Knew Him, you wouldn't know that that was the real man. So have you been getting good feedback here on people who thought that your dad was a foreboding figure who maybe would have been afraid to approach him in a dark alley. Are you hearing, wow, I'm really glad that you wrote this book because I thought that this guy was a real tortured soul, was was a bad actor, wasn't a good person. I, I hear a lot of wonderful things. One of the things that I've heard, and not just from a single person, but several people, I've heard that they themselves had rather tumultuous childhoods and that as kids they would watch The Twilight Zone and think of my father as their dad because the messages really helped them and helped pull them through some of their own really dark times. That that really impacted me. One of the hardest experiences I had writing this book was dealing with my grief, going back to something you'd said in the beginning of this. And my editor had actually said to me, your, your grief is so central to this book you really need to be more open. And I did a reading at the Paley Center before the book was actually even complete. And a woman came up to me and told me that her father had a terminal illness. And after hearing me speak, she knew she'd be okay. And I was so 
overwhelmed by this dean that you know something I had said, some words had helped her, and I, I really couldn't even speak to her. All I could do was hug her. So yeah, and, and and people that have said to me, you know, yeah, your dad was so funny. We didn't know. It's been rather a, a remarkable process, and people have been extraordinarily kind and responsive. I guess in a way that I had not anticipated. You say children watching it, wishing he was their dad. It's a beautiful sentiment, and that I guess is the really positive side of having an iconic name and sharing it with an iconic figure. Is fans may feel they have a little bit of connection to you. They some of them feel like they have a huge connection, almost ownership of your famous relative, and therefore a claim on your time. And that can go a little bit to the other extreme, or sometimes people just they might stumble into it. Somebody who really admires a man like Rod Serling, they may just be a little bit too pushy, or they may say the wrong thing. I'm thinking of the fact that your dad was a smoker. Sometimes people will just take it upon themselves to inform you that, you know, what they think of that in stark terms and say, you know, they're just frustrated with it, which you can understand, but it's not something you would say to a survivor. And I find that fascinating. And since we have you here, I wanted to ask you about it. When somebody does have the opportunity to share their affection for an iconic figure, a famous person who has meant a lot to them, what's the best way for them to go about that without adding to your grief, without bringing up something painful, without treating you like you're just a character here on the TV show they're talking to on the screen? How can they avoid that invasion of privacy and give you what I would hope they want to give you? And that's that hug, whether it's a physical one you spoke about or a great story like saying, you know, he really helped me through some hard times when I was a kid. What do you like to see people do when they want to come up to you, see your last name? I'm sure they light up and they want to tell you what your father meant to them. You know, it doesn't bother me. I'm just so honored that people remember my father and that they take the time to even tell me that or tell me how much they respected him and respected his writing and the messages that he was trying to get out. You know, and my dad, when people would stop him, he was always respectful. It bothered my sister and I when we were kids because it pulled him away. But I think probably we learned something from that, that you know, when people take the time to say something kind, it really doesn't bother me. And in terms of the smoking, yeah, I get it. I wish he hadn't smoked, too. He probably wished he hadn't. I know he wished he hadn't. I'm grateful. I'm honored that people remember this guy who I adore, too. <laughs> and as far as people being pushy, you share an anecdote a little bit like that in the book where you're at Universal Studios and a man is doing an impression. That is clearly a disturbing thing. So, and I assume because some of this deals or some of the Twilight Zone deals with, I guess, what you could call it, occult themes and things that sometimes people might get a little strange and conflate him with those sorts of things. So I was looking for that kind of idea where people come to you and if they're respectful, that's fantastic. But I guess I just wanted to say to people, think about it before you do it. I'm, I try to be really sensitive to that. For instance, if someone does have a, a terminal illness, you know, maybe they don't want to think about it and be asked about it all the time. So I think it's great that if people have read the book and they're going to come to you, there's this wider knowledge. He's really become so much more. He's almost stepped out of that TV show is how I'm picturing it and those intros to still embrace people, still influence people. Who has that kind of staying power from the early days of any medium? Usually we look back at that and we just laugh it off and we, we see all the flaws. But this and, and they had this incredible production schedule to boot that they had to overcome. It really is 
a show you could still watch again and again with new generations. And I suppose even though your children weren't able to meet your father, that they watch it too probably, and then they're able to have a little bit of a connection. Yeah, and how fortunate they are to have that connection too. And I, all of the fifth graders in Binghamton, New York, in a program called The Fifth Dimension, watch The Twilight Zones and they learn about, you know, under the guidance of really very extraordinary teachers, and they learn about mob mentality and all those things I mentioned before, scapegoating and prejudice, and they really get these themes. In fact, one of the teachers talked about showing the monsters who do on Maple Street, and at the end of the episode, she asked the class, who are the monsters? And she said the entire class stood up. Wow. So, you know, that was his school, by the way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He grew up in Binghamton, right. Born in Syracuse, grew up in Binghamton. Right. Just going back to that one thing that you said about the character that followed me around doing my father's voice. Yes, that that was offensive because it was pretty close to my father's voice, number one. And number two, he didn't seem to sense that he'd overstep and just kept following and it got creepy. But, you know, he's the exception, Dean. That's what's pretty remarkable. Did he know who you were? Or you had told him? Or? Yeah. It seems impossible to not get it. But I, it happens. Like I said, people forget that there's real flesh and blood there. And I think it's enough for, for those of us who admired the man to say, hey, look, I, w- I went to the plaque that stands in that hometown. And I took a picture by, by, you know, by that plaque. Or I went to one of the festivals that they have for the Twilight Zone. And I admired his work. The fact that you've come here and shared him with us really helps that in a way, because people are able to get from you right here in As I Knew Him, the real Rod Serling. And they don't have to necessarily grab you when they have the one chance to speak and and shake you down for information, so to speak, and and express it all. They can write you. And uh, that's a, a good thing about having the internet and things is that we can contact somebody like yourself and send you a tweet and say, I loved your book, which I certainly did. Yes, right. Thank you. You're enjoying my conversation with Anne Serling, author of As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling. You can visit her online, as I was just saying, at annserling.com or follow her at annserling on Twitter. Or you can toss a like to facebook.com slash annserlingbooks. And note that that's Ann with an E. I almost said Ann Shirley one of those times from Anne of Green Gables. That's not what I meant. But she is an Ann with an E. So when you go try to find it online, everyone can spell the last name, I guess. So Ann is with an E. Usually at this point, I read a blurb reviewing the book that I'm talking about, but I decided to cop out here with As I Knew Him because there's just so many praiseworthy quotes that have been offered up by people. And these are not just reviewers of books. It's not just Kirkus Reviews. It's icons themselves like Carol Burnett, Robert Redford, Betty White, who you talk about coming over and playing with your dogs at home, by the way. We haven't touched on your dad as animal lover yet. That so many of these people took the time to praise your book is especially impressive since your dad has been gone now for over 40 years. And Hollywood can be a a very cold business where people forget you if you're still here, much less when you've been gone a long time and can frankly no longer help them in any way. And they, they can just move on to the next person. Your dad writes about that, for instance, in The Velvet Alley. That's with my all-time beloved Jack Klugman and Art Carney there as a writer and an agent. That's another one you can get on YouTube and the like. What does it say about Rod Serling's legacy that so many of these colleagues shared their love with you as his daughter? Well, it was 
pretty astounding, and I was tremendously grateful that, you know, they stepped out of their incredibly busy lives to touch mine and offered these endorsements. And again, I, I have to repeat about my father's legacy, because he did deal with all these human issues. I think that's why it has survived. But he would have been so, so surprised. It's pretty amazing. Do you have a couple of them that you think off the top of your head that you thought, wow, I'm never going to get that person, and then they were happy and, and <laughs> sent it to you? You said, wow, they, I didn't think that they would answer me because I know usually in the process a publisher will say, well, try to get this person, try to get that person. In fact, when I worked in TV, it was like that. Try to get this or that guest, and you say, they're never going to call me back. And you got some of these people. Did you have a personal hand in that, or was that the publisher that was doing it? And did any of them surprise you that they got back to you with such passion and kindness? Well, you know, you're always surprised, and, and you're always grateful. I mean, I was so grateful for Robert Redford's comment, and Carol Burnett, who is just such a lovely, lovely woman. And she knew my dad, of course, because she'd been in one of the Twilight Zones. And I had found letter that they had exchanged. Somebody sent me. He wasn't too happy about the episode. She was in Cavender is coming or something. And that he wanted to buy her a sandwich because he felt so bad about it. And she'd written him back sort of a <laughs> funny response. And so she and I have stayed in touch. And, you know, just again, Dean, I was, I was so grateful that, and, and Robert Redford, of course, had been in one of the very first Twilight Zones, and he was also in something my dad wrote called In the Presence of Mine Enemies. And in his book, I don't know if it's an autobiography or a biography, but he had commented on my dad in his book, too. So the Twilight Zone really brought a lot of people's careers to life, and certainly Robert Redford's. And Jack Klugman, who you mentioned, just an extraordinary actor. I never met him, but I think from, you know, just watching him, he just seems like an incredibly lovely, lovely, talented man. He was great in that. And even though Carol Burnett, that one sort of fell flat, that was a backdoor pilot, as they call it in TV. They were hoping that that episode she was in would spark her own show. But the sudden attempt to inject comedy there just didn't work for her. And who writes somebody and says, I'm sorry that that, that the show didn't turn out exactly how I would have liked and I would like to buy you a sandwich? I mean, who who doesn't love that kind of thing? I mean, that right there... If anybody comes to you listening and says, oh, I heard that Rod Serling was really dark and brooding like that in life, and I don't know how many of these things have been written out there characterizing him as a dark and tortured person, but you could just say, does this sound dark and tortured? Who offers the, the most the most friendly lunch of all? The most friendly thing to do is say, hey, let me buy you a sandwich. And at the time, Carol Burnett is not the Carol Burnett that we know today. She's just starting out. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to take two seconds to care about her, and yet he does. Yeah, clearly he saw she was quite special, too. As I Knew Him takes us inside your family for many of those personal moments, no holiday meant more to your father than Christmas, regardless of his Jewish heritage, and not just because he shared the date we celebrate Christ's birth, December 25th. Take us back to your childhoods during those holidays and at that magical cabin of yours that meant so much to both of your parents. What were holidays like in the Serling family? Well, my dad was born on Christmas Day, and he said that he was a Christmas present that was delivered unwrapped. And although his Jewish heritage was extremely important to him, all throughout his life he would light Yorkside candles on the anniversary of his parents' death. They did celebrate Christmas, and Christmas was a really magical time in our family. 
we would watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas. And my father said that Christmas carols melted him. He loved them. We would also watch the Twilight Zone episode, Night of the Meek. We'd all scatter across his office floor. He had a study in the backyard, and we would watch that program. Just very special times in our cottage. We were here in the summer. Actually, it's on my mother's side of the family, built by her grandfather and great-grandfather. And it was an opportunity to get out of Los Angeles and really unwind and relax and a pretty magical place for all of us for all those reasons and just summer and very close to where my dad grew up in Binghamton, about an hour away. And every year, actually, my father would drive back to Binghamton. It was an annual pilgrimage and drive by his old house and the carousel and these touchstones of his past. So poignant for him personally for those reasons, too. One of my favorite sentiments from your dad is particularly useful for young people, which is no surprise. He loved to teach, as we mentioned earlier. He's quoted as saying things along the lines of, if you need drugs or booze to be a good writer, you're not a good writer. It's stark. It's well-written. It's all of those things, and people need to hear that, and especially with all the pitfalls that we saw in the 60s and the 70s with drugs ruining lives. And Rod Serling was clearly a man who loved to give back, I guess you'd say, to use a contemporary phrase. What do you hope those of us who weren't fortunate enough to sit in on one of his classes will take away from the lessons you recount in As I Knew Him as we go out there and take our shot at the blank page? Perseverance. My father went through several rejections. He had 40 rejections and, in fact, was told by someone that he should change his major because he'd never be a writer. So I think that's important. Don't give up. One of the things that I know that my father said about teaching is that he thought he learned more from the kids frequently than they learned from him. And my father also was quoted as saying he felt that it was a writer's job to menace the public's conscience. So I think, you know, don't be afraid to say what you feel in your heart. When readers finish that last page of As I Knew Him, what do you hope they'll see behind the furrowed brow and dramatic delivery, the gritted teeth, the next time they catch a glimpse of your father on the small screen in the Twilight Zone? I guess that he wasn't this dark individual. He was playful and he was funny and he was silly and he genuinely cared about people and he cared about what happened to us all, how we could all be different and better people. Well, Anne Serling, daughter of American treasure Rod Serling, we can't have your father in our writing group, unfortunately, critiquing our work and collaborating with us, but your book, As I Knew Him, is the next best thing. I was thrilled to see that you'd written this book, and I could come a little closer to meeting your dad, which is not possible in this life, or I guess outside the Twilight Zone, some might say. Best of luck with the book and all your future endeavors as you carry on this noble legacy of your father. We haven't mentioned so many great things that people can go out there and see. Once you pick up the book, it'll it'll give you a great guide to go and explore things like the time element, the Velvet Alley, Seven Days in May, Patterns, which launched him on his start. Requiem for a Heavyweight. If you haven't met Rod Serling yet, if you know him only through the Twilight Zone, pick up As I Knew Him and enjoy it. Get to know this American icon, this just great all-around guy and an animal lover to boot. Thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate you inviting us into your childhood home today so that we could sit there on the floor of your living room and meet your dad. Thank you so much, Dean. 
Again, the book is As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. Let's say you want to buy your own willy and practice your skills as a ventriloquist. Well, you go to historyauthor.com, click through that banner to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I really can't thank Anne Serling enough for joining me today. It was a thrill to find out she'd written this book and then for her to email me back when I emailed her at the website. I just wanted to give back a little bit to Rod Serling's legacy for all that he gave me and so many millions of people. So thanks to Anne, not just for her time, but for bringing color to the face that most viewers know only from that black and white two-dimensional delivery. Visit her online at annserling.com Follow her at Ann Sterling on Twitter and toss her a like at facebook.com slash Ann Sterling Books. And remember, that's Ann with an E. While you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter History Dean or facebook.com slash history author. And you can also check us out on Instagram. Well, that's my closing narration for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. I'll see you right back here for our next trip into the past together. Until then, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.